Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. And we just came off of a week of grueling video work in which we've created a really exciting product called Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind. It wasn't that grueling, though. Well, I mean, I mean I'm, it wasn't like we were being force whipped or anything. It was a great experience. It was just we had to do a lot of it in a very short time. And well, we had to muddle through some concepts that were a little bit heavy. Yeah, and my, my brain only works well with conversation and for a very short period of time every day. So I had to really try and stretch that time out to cover an entire eight-hour period. So. Well, not only that, we had to become actors. Yes, a little which bit. Which was a, a whole bit. other thing. But anyway, we, we had the chance to talk about the scale of the universe in one of our episodes for BASF-sponsored Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind, and we thought that this would be some interesting fodder for you guys that we could expand on a little bit. Yeah, the video version is going to start off with a cool little experiment that you can do at home to show kids, or even yourself. I mean, I really had a ball doing the experiment because yeah, it, 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 it helps fun. me understand all this stuff that's really so much larger than ourselves. It's going to start off with this experiment, and then we're going to go in, and you're going to see us floating around in space as we talk about all this stuff. But we can only go into so much detail there. So this is consider this a companion piece, this episode, yeah. in which we discuss the subject of planetary scale and the scale of our solar system in a little more detail. Well, we wanted to try to let kids know just how tiny, tiny, tiny our Earth is, even though it seems immense. And so we did sort of this, uh, I guess you could say, like pantry experiment yeah. with a bunch of different objects that you could find in your home to illustrate this. Right. So the basic experiment boils down to you're going to just grab a few household items to illustrate exactly what the sizes are. So, for instance, you would start off with Earth, which is the size of a black peppercorn. Pretty small, right? Uh, tiny. Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, would be about the size of like a gumball or a foosball. So if you grabbed one of those and put it next to a black peppercorn, that would be about the size. Saturn would be as big as a hazelnut. Uranus and Neptune would be coffee beans. Venus would be a green peppercorn. Mars and Mercury would be just little pinheads. And then the sun itself, how big would that be? Oh, well, how about a 10-pound bowling ball? Yeah. Boom. We are hoping that that gives kids a really good perspective of, like, again, how tiny the Earth is Mm -hmm. relative to the other planets and to the sun. And when we talk about that green peppercorn Venus, that's just slightly larger than the Earth. Just wanted to point that out since you're like, well, peppercorns, what's up with that? And what we talked about, which I think is really interesting, is, okay, like if that doesn't kind of root you in an idea of these relative distances, let's talk about what would happen if we were to take a walk across the Earth and then we are about to take a walk across the sun. What might we expect in those journeys? Well, let's see. The average human being walks roughly three miles per hour. The circumference of the Earth is about 24,901 miles. Uh Uh-huh. So it would take you about 345 days to walk all that. Oh, that, that that's doable, right? Well. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, and then you also have to have a continuous strip of land or bridge on which to walk. So it's a thought experiment. Uh, well, do for, not attempt for, this. I was about to say, like, Cyborg Julie could probably do this, right? Well, I, I guess. But if, where's if Cyborg I, Julie now? She's never here. She's being built. Oh, she's being built. Or rather, my, my parts excuse. are being built, the parts that don't need to digest anything and just can keep walking on and on. But, okay, so if you're going to try to make the same journey around the sun, what would be facing you is 2.7 million miles, which would take you more than a century to walk. Yeah, basically about 102 
years and some change. So that definitely, that's even something that Cyborg Julie would have a problem with, I think, unless you really pimped out her uh, metal skin. Yeah, yeah, that's just a couple years away. That's that's like a total nano. This was interesting to us because we started to say we, we really take all of these distances for granted. The fact that we even have this knowledge And, you know, we can look uh, back at the giants of science who began to get an inkling of just how big our universe is. Yeah, because the like the bowling ball and the peppercorn and all that, you can build a thousand yard model with that where where Mm -hmm. you you space them out. And and I'll throw some links to this experiment up on the blog post that accompanies this episode if you want to try it for real at home. But if you have a thousand yards, you can put that bowling ball at one end and you can string the planets out at appropriate distances and you have a scale model of the solar system. Which would spread out to, what, about half a mile. Let's imagine that you are Johannes Kepler, right? You're 16th century German mathematician and astronomer. We have discussed him a couple times here in the podcast. Yeah, because because the thing is, we talk about these distances, and then you ask, well, how do we know that? And how is it possible that we've, we've more or less known it for centuries? Well, Kepler looked at the solar system in the same way we might look at a racetrack, all right? If you've been to a racetrack, you know that you have these inner lanes, and then you have progressively outer lanes. Mm -hmm. So the distance around that inner lane is less than the distance around that outer lane. Right. That's why you always stagger runners, right? Right. But if you weren't to stagger them, if everybody started at the same time, you'd have less distance to cover if you were on the inner ring. Right. And if everyone was traveling at the same speed, then the closer you were to the middle of that racetrack, the shorter your trip would be. So Kepler looked out at the planets, and he clocked the time it took for them to rotate around the sun and use that to determine exactly how far from the sun they were. And that's the breakthrough he had after he went to a dog race, right? Yeah, he was able to figure out stuff that, like, Mars is 1.5 times farther from the sun than Earth. Mm -hmm. Right. So he couldn't exactly give exact measurements in kilometers, but he could figure out the order of the planets. And, for example, what you just said about Mars being farther from the sun than the Earth. Then there comes along this guy by the name of Giovanni Cassini. Yeah, um, he's 17th century, whereas yeah. uh, Johannes Kepler was about a century earlier. Yeah, and he is also an astronomer, and he takes this idea of parallax, and he applies it to the universe. But before we talk about how he did that, we'll just explain this parallax method, which is super easy. You can just put a finger up and close one eye mm-hmm. and then open the other eye, close it, and shift between them. And it appears that your fingers just has a slight shift to it when you do that. Right. It appears to jump from yeah. one side to the other, back and forth as you stagger the blinking. Yeah. And this is because your eyes are separated from each other by a distance of a few inches. So each eye sees the finger in front of you from a slightly different angle. Now, you can't really do that with a star or a planet in the sky. So what good old Giovanni Cassini does here is that he says, well, all right, what if I had one eye here in Paris mm-hmm. and I had another eye in South America mm-hmm. and then I look to the heavens? Right, right. So, I mean, this is what gave him a baseline, the same parallax, right, that your eyes have, that those inches between, of several thousand kilometers. And then using geometry, he was able to calculate a distance from Mars that is only 7% off today's more precise measurements, which is pretty incredible because it's kind of, I think about it as like, well, what did you do today? Oh, I had this whole breakthrough about, you know, this parallax method. What if you applied it to two different geographic points here on Earth to try to figure out the immensity of the universe. If today you have a satellite or space probe named after you, you were pretty dope. I mean, yeah. you, you you had it going on in the brains department and the cosmic mechanics. You did the legwork for yeah. what we have today, right, uh, in terms of our understanding of the universe and even our more precise measurements like radar, which is what we use to actually figure out a lot of the distances. Yeah, radar is pretty simple. You send these waves out. 
they bounce off of another planet, they come back, we know how fast the waves travel, mm-hmm. so we time that journey, and then we're able to see exactly how far those waves travel. Right. And when you're thinking about radio signals beaming those back to Earth and that that can be timed, if that seems weird, just remember that radar is essentially microwave electromagnetic radiation. And microwaves fall under the radio spectrum. And so since electromagnetic radiation in all of its forms is light, we know that radar travels at the speed of light and can measure it. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about Voyager a little bit. Yeah, and we're going to talk about breaking through to the other side into interstellar space. All right, we're back. So, Voyager, just to rehash. Back in 1977, we launched uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 out into space to explore other planets and to beam information about these planets in our solar system back to Earth. And they continue to travel, and we continue to keep in touch with them. And we're not as close as we used to be. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, don't, they don't come over for dinner as often, but uh, you know, there's some correspondence going on there. And they're up to interesting things. Well, you know, they again, they gathered all that wonderful data for us and beamed it back to us. And they are on a new tour of sorts into interstellar space. At least that's what we think any day now, up until about two years from now, that this is going to happen. And the reason we know this is because they are, again, collecting data, uh, particularly about the solar winds that we know are present in our solar system. And what they found, researchers found this actually last spring, is that the solar winds completely died down. And at first they thought this was an anomaly because these were the sort of particles that were coming at the probe, right? Uh-huh. But then they realized that, no, that they are actually entering the heliopause. And if you think heliopause, you think, you know, sun, and then a quick stop before you start again. This is that outermost bubble that is surrounding the solar system. Yeah. And they're at the cusp of it. Yeah, I like to think of it in terms of, uh, imagine the sun as a, a campfire. And the planets are more or less huddled around this campfire for warmth and energy and light. Mm-hmm. And the farther you walk away from that campfire, the darker it gets, the colder it gets, until you actually walk into the darkness. You pass that point where the light from the fire and the heat from the fire ceases to be a commanding factor. That's right. So Voyager is essentially passing out through this darkness. And again, to talk about the speeds, they had been going something like 150,000 miles per hour. That's what the solar winds were blowing at. They just... Stopped, period. I mean, that's really yeah. traumatic. Voyager 1 is both the fastest moving and the most distant man-made object. Yeah, yeah, which is incredible that, again, it's beaming, even the fact that the solar winds completely died down. So researchers found that the speed of the charged particles hitting Voyager's outward face matched the spacecraft's own speed, and that's what you're talking about when you're talking about that campfire kind of dying out, because that suggests that the probe has bumped up against pressure from the interstellar magnetic field in the region between the stars, right, right outside of our solar system. So, again, that's an indication that less and less of the sun's influence is apparent and that the spacecraft is actually entering new territory. So what do we have going on in the outer limits of our solar system? This is an interesting thing to mention, too. We talked about the magnetic field. In June of last year, it was discovered that the time the spacecraft was moving through what Popside described in its article, Voyager 1 might leave the solar system any day now, a foamy froth of magnetic bubbles which is a bizarre phenomenon that results from the crisscrossing and rejoining of magnetic field lines at the edge of the solar system. 
So what is beyond that? Well, there are two things that interest us here, and one is the Kuiper Belt, and this is a disc-shaped region of icy objects beyond the orbit of Neptune, billions of kilometers from our sun. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's thought to be sort of like leftover material from the formation of our solar system. Uh, it's still within our solar system. Yes. In fact, it contains Pluto, Pluto yeah. which is the largest object in the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is also believed to be the source for short-period comets. Those are comets that take about less than 200 years to orbit. Now, if you go out even farther, you encounter something called the Oort Cloud, which is also thought to be home to a number of comets as well. And this is an immense spherical cloud surrounding the planetary system, thought to extend approximately three light years, Mm -hmm. and is about 30 trillion kilometers from the sun. This is speculative, but it's also thought that the Oort cloud may account for a significant fraction of the mass in the solar system, perhaps as much or even more than the planet Jupiter. So that much mass just spread out. Yeah, again, this is a theory, this idea that the Oort cloud is sort of like a thick bubble that surrounds the entire solar system, reaching about halfway from the sun to the next nearest star. And there's also this idea that it intersects with the Kuiper belt. Yeah, so Um, this is the cosmic riffraff that lives on the margins of planetary society. uh, Yeah, including long period comets. Again, this is a theory of the source of those. Drifters. Yeah, yeah, big time drifters. But I think what's so tantalizing about this idea of Voyager leaving our solar system and going into interstellar space is that it is collecting all of this data and changing the way that we are viewing how the universe works and, and challenging some of our theories. So will we gather more data about the Oort cloud? Will we say, yes, this, this thing actually exists? And once it does go into interstellar space and is under the influence of other suns, Again, who knows, you know, what sort of time period we're looking at in terms of that. Oh, I do. Oh, you do? I have it in my notes, yeah. Of course. How is that going to, again, change our understanding of our relative place here on Earth and the universe around us? Well, for starters, if we were to aim Voyager 1 at Alpha Centauri, it could make it there in about 70,000 years. And like yeah, that alone supposed, should give you yeah, a little uh, Yeah, so probably not scale. in our lifetime in, in terms of another sun, like major influence. But what about the space in between, right? Yeah, I've also read that Voyager 1 is more or less, it's not, these are, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are not really aimed at any interstellar destinations. Right. But Voyager 1 is roughly headed towards the constellation off of Yucas. So in the year 40,272 A.D., Voyager 1 will come within 1.7 light years of an obscure star in the constellation Ursa Minor, the little bear or the the little dipper, Mm -hmm. called AC plus 793888. And then Voyager 2, it's estimated that in about 40,000 years, it will come within about 1.7 light years of a star called Ross 248, a small star in the constellation of Andromeda. So... These are colossal numbers, and they give you just a little more insight into just the colossal scale of the universe beyond our solar system, which is ultimately just as puny, uh, punier in the grand scheme of things than our Earth is within our own solar system. Well, and I think just even even the bits of information that have come back, like what's happening at the edge of the solar system, these magnetic bubbles, this now brings into question, well, what are these magnetic bubbles doing anyway? Because, again, we're talking about the magnetic field sort of doing these twisty-turny things, creating these magnetic bubbles. Are they actually taking the cosmic rays and deflecting them from the Earth, essentially, and from the sun, or are those bubbles helping those cosmic rays to reach the sun and the Earth? How are they actually helping in terms of defense or ag- aggression, I guess you could say, <laughs> to our solar system? 
Yeah. I mean, that is frothy magnetic bubbles. It doesn't get any better than that. So I, I can't wait. You know, maybe it'll be a couple of years before it actually goes into interstellar space. But one can only imagine what sort of information we will get from that. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are just fascinating and beautiful. And we have an article on HowStuffWorks.com about the Voyager program that you should check out. So go to HowStuffWorks, put Voyager into the uh, search bar, and you'll find that. Because they're not only probes of exploration, they're time capsules. Well, I was going to say, they're artifacts, Testaments, really. or, or if you will, tombstones for the human race <laughs> that have been jettisoned out there into the void to let everyone know who we once were and how great we were and what we looked like naked. You're referring to the Golden Album, right? In the plates, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and these contain all sorts of samples, I guess you could say, from Earth. Babies cry, I'm trying to think of, like, you know... Doves some, cry, that's on there. That's, that, that's right. on the B-side. Yeah. yeah, there's some knocking on there. Specific pieces of music that have been really important to our culture. Yeah. And, and then just living sounds. And not only is it just going, like you say, on sort of a mission to explore the rest of the Milky Way, but it does represent a piece of humanity. All right. Well, speaking of a uh, piece of humanity, let's have that robot bring us some pieces of humanity in the form of some listener mail. Here's some listener mail that we received from Rachel in uh, response to our toxoplasmosis episode, and it's one of the more interesting ones uh, that we received. We received a lot of great content that really got people's minds working. But Rachel writes in and says, I really enjoyed your podcast on Toxo. My mom ate steak tartare while pregnant with me, and I was infected with Toxo in utero. I was lucky, as this happened during the third trimester, the only part of me affected with my vision. The Toxo parasites consumed all of the central retina in one eye and left lesions in both eyes. I had excellent eye care and wear glasses both for nearsightedness as well as to protect my good left eye from objects as my right eye has only peripheral vision. I also have a nystagmus, eye-wiggling, but that has had minimal effect on me other than kids teasing me when I was growing up. I find the information about parasites and mental health fascinating as well. Thank you for this podcast, as well as your earlier podcast on a similar topic. In addition to parasites, I know that there are many factors in the gut affecting mental health. My daughters and I have celiac disease, and I saw a huge change in my daughter's behavior when we eliminated gluten, and my moods became much more stable as well. I'd love to hear a podcast on how different foods can affect us beyond needing a sandwich when feeling bloody or wrathful. Thanks again for a great podcast, Rachel. Oh, that's a great email. That's a lot to think about. And it probably does bear a little bit more exploration into what we've talked about, the gut and the brain, but certainly what we put in our gut yeah. and how it affects us. Yeah, and we will certainly be conducting more research and doing more episodes regarding our diets and our digestion. Uh, those are It's such a fascinating area, and there's always new research rolling out on the subject. So Yeah, we I'm definitely sure live in an era where we've got a ton of great information to draw from. All right, here's another one. This is from Dan. Dan writes in and says, Robert and Julie, last night I experienced sleep paralysis for the first time and only time of my life. I woke up rather suddenly because I was overheating under my very warm comforter. I desperately wanted to take the blanket off and cool down, but I couldn't move at all. I could only open my eyes. It was a rather scary experience, but I must say it was reassuring to understand what was happening from a scientific perspective. After maybe 30 seconds, which felt much longer given the circumstances, I was finally able to move and escape from my bed. I can certainly see why some cultures have explained sleep paralysis as ghostly apparitions pinning down their victims, but it was very comforting to know what was exactly happening. Anyway, keep up the great podcast. Yeah, yeah. And it is terrifying. I, I don't know if I've ever shared it here on the podcast, but I know I've shared with you that I had a repetitive dream up until my 20s in which I had a, I was pinned down in my dream and the dog was mauling my face. Oh. 
And so I would try to wake up and I'd be like, like trying to scream but couldn't move. And it really, it's the worst thing in the world. But, but understanding why that's happening is, it is incredibly comforting to think, wow, I'm not losing it. Um, this is a dream. This yeah, this really is a dream. This is this was this weird thing that just happened between disconnect between my muscles and my brain, and I'm not being lifted off to a saucer. Well, there you go. Well, I tend to full of dogs. <laughs> oh, saucer of dogs. Yeah. Well, well, there you go. I tend to think our listeners tend to already understand how reality and unreality work and the, the difference between a dream and, uh, and an actual dog modeling. But to, to whatever extent, we can provide a little more ammo to help people when you're having a nightmare or about a sleep paralysis, then, hey, that's just a baby. I, I think it's just fascinating to know that those are the inner machinations going on in our brain and, and our body and how all of it is connected. Yeah, so Dan, thanks for sending that in. I'm always delighted to hear about people's dreams and the various strange things that can go on during sleep or just in our minds in general that can sometimes become interpreted as a paranormal encounter. So if you would like to reach out to us, if you would like to share something with us and see what we're up to and check out some links to these Stuff to Blow Your Kids Mind videos that we're talking about, hit us up on Facebook where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind and then you can also find us on Twitter where we are blow the mind and you can always drop us a line at blow the mind at discovery.com be sure to check out our new video podcast stuff from the future join house to work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow